Welcome to episode 135. Today, the legendary Dr. Virginia Collier and Dr. Wayne Thomas talk about the transformative power of dual language programs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. I have found that the best podcasts are the ones where I sit and listen and ask only a few questions because the authors and the guests have so much to say. This is one of those episodes. Dr. Collier and Dr. Thomas will pour 35 years of research and study of dual language programs into this podcast conversation. They will share why it's so effective different program models, and their suggestions. If your schools and districts are considering dual language programs, please have them listen to this conversation. It is like a master class in dual language education from data to theory to practice. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so honored and delighted to introduce to you Dr. Virginia Collier and Dr. Wayne Thomas, two of the most brightest lights in our field. Let me tell you, I knew you back about 15 years ago when I started going to my uh, master's education program. And I, you know, you notice like the citations. You notice like Echeverria, short, and you evolve. And then, and then very quickly behind that, you notice like Collier and Thomas. And then again, again, and again. And I was like, wow, I think you are two of the most cited experts in the field. So it is an honor to have um, such enlightened gurus to do <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. I'll mention that Dr. Deborah Short uh, is one of our doctoral graduates. She, she studied with us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's start off with talking about a story, uh, can you share a story of working with either uh, pre-service teachers or working with multilingual students that has informed your practice to this day? Maybe I'll try, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, okay. I want to point out that uh, I am, I'm an educator. I was a high school math and physics teacher, but I'm not a language educator. The reason that Ginger and I first got together had to do with uh, combining my background in evalu program evaluation and research methodology with her background in uh, language education and, and, and linguistics. Right. So we, our, our backgrounds don't overlap very much. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, I don't have many stories to tell about direct interaction with uh, English learner, uh, English learners or multilingual students because I taught high school math and physics. But I can talk a lot about interacting with the data from those students. Uh, and but there are one or two incidents from our past, mid 80s, mid to late 80s or so, 
The first large study we did was in uh, a, a, at the time, the, the largest, 10th largest school district in the US. And they were English only instruction, very high powered school district, very wealthy, very well informed, teachers extraordinarily well trained. A lot of Asian students. A lot of Asian <laughs> students. And so we had every reason to believe that their program would be successful in the, you know, very much so. And so my, my story is I'm sitting there at, you can imagine this perhaps, sitting there in front of a big computer screen at 3 a.m., which is when I do my best work. He's you know, doing other stuff then. But anyway, <laughs> I, um, I was sitting in front of this huge computer screen with a, a multidimensional data display showing you know, all this graphical analysis of data. And my reaction when I first saw that the even in this high-powered school district, the students who had received English-only instruction and who were in a very advantaged situation were scoring basically at the 19th to 20th percentiles. On, in, English, in English, not in math. Not in they math, were doing yeah. fine in math, yes. but not in English. But my reaction, as you might imagine, was, oh my, <laughs> this is what's going on throughout the country and perhaps around the world, isn't it? Right. Right. As far as I know, there weren't too many efforts before then to study 185,000 students mm -hmm. at one time. This was a big school district. Mm -hmm. And so my first reaction was, as I said, oh my, you know, one of shock. And then a realization that, oh, this is going on all around the country, all around the world. And this group called English Learners, what we call them here, um, is the largest at-risk group in U.S. schools. But it doesn't stop there. They're also the fastest growing group, mm -hmm. at-risk group in U.S. schools. Mm -hmm. And they are the at-risk group most in need. And they are the at-risk group least funded by federal, state, and other educational agencies. And so that was a transformative moment for me. Um, that moment and one several years later, when once again, I'm looking at the computer screen, you know, big data display at 3 a.m. And I realized that what I'm seeing is evidence of very large effect sizes. Now, an effect size is a statistical measure of how strong, how powerful a program is. And these dual language programs, if you can imagine this, you know, a cloud of data points with regression lines for each group and all that sort of thing. I'm looking at that going, oh, wow, these programs are the most powerful programs that I have ever seen as a professional evaluator. And I started in the 1970s, the early 1970s. He's been analyzing a lot of data. I've analyzed over, a lot of data since 1972 or so. Records. So this, these are by far the most powerful programs in terms of their abilities to change students' outcomes, raise test scores, improve attitudes, all those kinds of things. These are by far the most powerful programs I have ever examined. And I've looked at Title I, special needs, all sorts of programs. I'm a professional evaluator. And so those were both two transformative data moments for me. They don't involve direct interaction with students, but they do involve direct interaction with the data from hundreds of thousands of those students and the enormous impact on my realization. Remember, I'm not a language educator. But I did decide long about then that I was going to make the interests of these students one of my primary professional emphases from now on. And so I have. 
when, and here we are 40 years later. Yeah. <laughs> when Wayne mentioned Title I, um, that's uh, for students in poverty. For, for the yeah, federal programs for students uh, uh, of all ethnic groups you know, who in, are in lower in socioeconomic poverty. status groups. Um, <clears throat> it's been amazing to me that the federal government spends upwards of 15 to $20 billion a year for Title I. And English learners get and, what one tenth of that yeah, at best, and the programs don't work. Very and the programs, well. they they're not a great solution yeah. at all. So that's the transformative moment for me. That, as I said, doesn't involve direct interaction with English learners, but it does involve direct interaction with their data and a tremendous transformative effect on me that caused me to basically start working with her. And we've done so now for 35 years. 35 years of analyzing yeah. data. Ah. <laughs> um, and shall I tell my story? Uh, I'm sorry I went on okay. too long. You can, you can... Um, well, I grew up part of my childhood in Central America um, and uh, picked up Spanish there. So I grew up bilingually, Spanish, English. Um, but our, our main home was North Carolina. My dad was a professor of Central American history in um, but at the University of North Carolina. And so um, uh, when I was, when I grew up, had a family and decided I would never be a teacher because both my parents were teachers and uh, I saw how hard they had to work. And so I was, I was quite certain I was not going to be a teacher. And of course I ended up teaching first Spanish in high school and then ESL and um, uh at that time, we were living in Washington, D.C., and our elementary school, my daughter, my oldest yeah, the daughter. The we you refer to is not me. Yeah, this is a, another mar Former first marriage. marriage. And um, my oldest daughter was uh, entering first grade, and uh, the neighborhood school decided to be a bilingual school. And so we just totally lucked out, uh, Spanish, English, um, and uh, um, later, she said, "Mom, why didn't you raise me in Spanish and in, in you know in, in English?" And I didn't, I didn't even think about that as an issue. I was just a young mother, just trying to keep going. And so, um, when I visited the classes that she was enrolled in, I couldn't stop visiting as a parent. I was just, oh my God, this is this is going to change the world. Um, what I saw happening, and it was native English speakers, both black and white and Jewish and a whole mix of kids, and uh, as well as um, half of the class native Spanish speakers, teaching each other their languages through the curriculum. And, and the teachers were doing lots of hands-on discovery learning, and I just, I was enchanted. And so I said, I want to spread this to the whole world. And so I kind of have <laughs> now in if, a way. If both of us sound a little idealistic, <laughs> it's because we still are. Yeah, right. Um, eventually I got my PhD and, and um, uh, worked on, uh, I was at that time doing studies that, that didn't really have much consequence in terms of influencing policymakers. But when Wayne joined me and started analyzing all these big data sets, that's when we started to have influence on policymakers. So. That's my story. <laughs> so philosophically, my whole professional preparation is involved with providing policymakers with information they need to make better decisions. That's what my that's what program evaluation is all about uh, as a professional area of study. And uh, it started in this country in mm, early 70s, late 60s, when you actually could get a degree in this. And so it's these days it's much more widely um, 
uh, accepted. The U.S. government has a, a large office, the Government Accountability Office, that does evaluations, audits, and other studies for every office that wants it in the executive branch and the congressional and the uh, legislative branches of the U.S. government. So that's the degree to which program evaluation is now infused into uh, modern U.S. society. Uh, but there still aren't that many people running around loose with a, a degree in it. A lot of people do it who don't have degrees in it. I've actually got master's and doctoral degrees in it so, and taught it for 25 years. So I say that again, only not to talk about me, but to talk about we're coming at this for completely different perspectives, yeah. okay? Yeah. And the fact that you have looked at 8,000 individual data points. 8 million. 8 million, <laughs> sorry. Let me guess. The fact that you have 8 million, sorry, data points, that's a huge amount of data points. And that it's really showing us there's a case for bilingual education. So I would yeah. love to. Go ahead, can you talk about that case? Sure. Uh, we can, you, know, you can talk about the bilingual education side of it, but our, our largest study to date is in Ginger's home state of North Carolina. We analyzed data from every child in the North Carolina school districts, all over 1.1 million children five for, years. for each of five years. So that's by far, I think, the largest study that's ever been done. And I hope I'm not crazy enough to do anything that's larger than that, because it took me a while to recover from that one. In any case, when you analyze an entire state's worth of data, 1.1 million children, and you follow them over a five-year period, what you find is basically unassailable. I mean, that's a whole state we're talking about. It's not uh, a whole USA. It's not just 25 children over here in the corner or in some small school district out in the rural area somewhere. This is the entire state, the great state of North Carolina. <laughs> and um, what they did that was very important at the governor's office le uh, level and the sc state school board was they decided to implement dual language in every school district in the state of North Carolina, which is very unusual for the South. This is a Southern state um, right. that... Uh, uh, in the past has not been very open, you know, the blacks and whites were segregated when I first grew up and, and uh, things like that. And now they are really enthusiastic about dual language because it works so well. It, and they include all kids, um, English learners and native English speakers, and they have it in 10 languages, I think it is mm -hmm. now, uh, including Cherokee in, in the uh, western part of North Carolina in the indigenous um, uh, region, and um, <clears throat> so it's 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 really flourishing. And some of the school districts now have it all the way up to to twelfth grade, so they have graduates. Um, and these kids, uh, what we found when we analyzed the data was that the kids in dual language, by it takes a while, but by um, middle school level, generally, if you look at the eighth grade scores you'll see that they're at least one to two grades ahead of their peers, not in dual language. One or two grades, that's no, a lot. In other words, when they arrive in middle school as sixth graders, they're performing as if they're seventh and eighth graders. Mm -hmm. That's the big difference. You know, I talked about lar very large effect sizes, the very large effect sizes. And <clears throat> it's not just the white middle-class kids. Right. It's all of them. It includes the African-American low-income kids. Uh, they are scoring two grades ahead by eighth grade. Um, and um, even special ed, special education students 
who, whose parents have chosen for them to be in the dual language program. Those kids are one to two grades ahead by middle school. There's been a problem for decades in U.S. education is that we don't need to deal with the education needs of low socioeconomic students nearly as well as we should. And I don't know about other countries, but I know that we don't do a good job. And so one of the really important things about dual language is to point out that we've, we've actually studied this. About 20% of English learners' achievement is pulled down or negatively influenced by low socioeconomic status. Their home and family backgrounds they come from uh, tend to pull down about 20% of their achievement as measured by tests. In a well-executed dual language program, that is reduced to less than 5%. Okay, so you see what that means. That means that for once we are able to reverse, rewrite, and, and overcome some, three-fourths at least, of the negative impacts of socioeconomic status. Now, that's huge. That's colossal. Title I has been trying to, has been spending 15 to $20 billion a year to do that for 40 years, and they've never succeeded very well. I, I know because I, I'm specialized in, in that kind of thing. And so the fact that, that a well-executed dual language program, a well-implemented program can reverse that kind of pervasive negative effects on education and reverse them and turn them around and make them positive is, I, that's miraculous. And it's not just a one-shot thing. It works if the program is well-implemented across the board, you see that. Mm -hmm. But you have to analyze a lot of data to see it. <clears throat> And you have to keep the program going into the secondary years. That's right. <laughs> and that's a real problem. There are a lot of places where they say, okay, we'll fool they, around with this with elementary school. They do but it for we're going to get serious in secondary school. Then they, you know. they stop it. So. Both of us were, she was a middle school teacher and I was a high school teacher. So we, we have real interest in the secondary years uh, in particular, based that goes back a long time. So you're making the case for a continuum of not just, not, like from K to 12, not just... Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yes. Now, dual, the nature of dual language programs changes from elementary school to middle school <laughs> to high school. They have different objectives, different strategies, different approaches. But overall, the overarching impact is much greater cognitive acceleration, much greater student engagement with instruction. Those are the two biggies. Time and time again, wherever we look, data sample, this state, that state, wherever state we look. We see those two. That's what those are the things that dual language programs that are well implemented really do well. They accelerate students' cognitive development and they greatly increase the students' <laughs> engagement with the good instruction that teachers are providing in the classroom. The kids, for once, are not bored out of their minds. They are actually paying attention, they are participating, they're interacting. And if the teacher can jump on that and use it and, and teach up and down Bloom's taxonomy, not just the low level. Uh, you know, uh, drill and kill type aspects of the curriculum, wonderful things can happen in terms of students' attitudinal improvements, their, uh, their test scores. Uh, it, it's truly, really just almost it's miraculous. Amazing. It's amazing. Um, one of the amusing <clears throat> things uh, in the data sets in North Carolina, when we, we had lots to look at. So uh, one of the factors was attendance. So we looked at school attendance and sure enough, the dual language kids were, uh, were attending a lot more than the kids in, in the regular curriculum. And so we said, we, we did a few interviews with teachers and principals and said, what do you think's going on there? And they said, 
they just don't want to miss a day of school. So they come even when they're sick. You know, they just are so excited about what we're doing. <laughs> so. so where, so you said uh, increased cognitive demand and engagement. So you're basically saying that uh, dual English programs work better than non-dual English programs. So can you talk about those two? Like why, why do, why does um, dual language program produces more engagement and cognitive um, functioning, but also non-dual language programs, like what about them makes it hard for students who are diverse and um, <clears throat> from lowest economic communities? Why is it harder for them to achieve? Okay, well, let's start with English learners and think about that for a minute. Um, the English learners, when they enroll in a dual language program, it's ideal and, and really important for them to enroll in a program that's in their home language, their, their, their first language. And that's the key for them. Uh, when they get to work on schooling, uh, academic work in their first language, then they are in nonstop cognitive development and they not, they're not losing time on thinking skills and cognition while they're acquiring the second language. And, um, and it takes a while to acquire your second language to a high enough level that you can perform academically on grade level. And so while they're doing that, they're not missing any schooling. They're not, they're not getting behind in their grade and in their school work. So they're keeping up in their class on, yeah. on, level, on grade level instruction, and they're improving their cognitive, cognitive development, development along the way, rather than yeah. the opposite. When you separate them from their, their mother tongue, their mm -hmm. home language, mm -hmm. their cognitive development actually can slow down. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And, uh, and so the, the issue of, of getting nonstop cognitive development in first language is key, is absolutely key. Um, now, for the native English speakers in the dual language classes, um, they're in an additive bilingual context. They're always going to continue to get developing English outside of school and inside school. And so they already have that cognitive stimulus in their first language, and then they're adding a second <clears throat> language, and that just creates more expansion of cognitive uh, abilities in, in your brain. And our brains are wired for multilingualism. Um, hello. It's a <laughs> we, human trait. It's, it's just normal and natural. And <clears throat> so to deny that part of our brain functioning and just to have only one language is ridiculous. And uh, in most of the rest of the world, everybody, many people are multilingual. And it's only the English-speaking countries who are still holding on to this silly idea that we should only be proficient in one language. Um, and so we're, we're working on the U.S. <laughs> I want to be sure we work in the point that you were talking about native English speakers in dual language programs. I want to be sure that people understand those native English speakers in dual language programs actually substantially outscore native English speakers who are in the traditional English-only curriculum, mm -hmm. okay? So this is not just good for English learners. It's very good, our recent research would show, for at-risk students of any background, and it's even good for the upper middle-class native English-speaking <laughs> students who have always been benefiting from U.S. instruction anyway. Even they do better. Mm -hmm. Now, the English learners make more progress because they have, they're further behind. Uh, and so, you know, but... This, this is an innovation, and by the way, we should point out this is a 
North American American Innovation, two-way dual language instruction originated here. Okay, the rest of the world does various forms of bilingual instruction, but it's not the same as two-way dual language, which I, I, I like to say was inspired by the Canadians, but developed in the U.S. Yeah. Now, you, you're the expert. You talk about it. <laughs> but the Canadian version is one way. So that, in other words, there's only one language group getting schooling through their two languages. Um, immersion in Canada is a, is a bilingual program for native English speakers. And uh, it could be in Quebec, um, a, a program for French uh, speakers to. Uh, you know, but the, but that's it was developed for native English speakers. Uh, so so we when, when it came to the United States, we developed a, another version which we call two way, which is two language groups being schooled through their two languages and teaching each other. And that's the power. That's the power of this. Model. So, for example, Spanish speaking <laughs> students who are who are English learners are put in the same classes with native English speakers like me, for example, uh, and they both prosper greatly in this environment. Mm -hmm. Now, when we go to Europe and talk about this, they sometimes go, you know, like they don't quite understand what's, <laughs> what's happening to that. We, we haven't had the opportunity to go to Asia, but we've been to Europe a number of times, mm -hmm. and they seem very interested in the prospect, but it's like, they understand mother tongue instruction, but they don't seem to understand two-way dual language instruction at quite as well. And so... I don't know whether that's the point we should follow up on yeah. or we should just let that one go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, we, we can tell the, the silly um, little joke. One of our British um, friends came to the U.S. because he couldn't believe that this could even happen. So he said, set What do you think he thought we were wacky or something? So, so he got to come set, over and see for himself. Set me up to visit some of these programs. So we did. And, and afterwards he said, hmm, tiny, tidy bit of social engineering here. <laughs> <laughs> and even though he he was being humorous there's a certain aspect of truth to that it does influence students social cultural competencies their abilities to get along with each other it not only raises their test scores and makes them bilingual biliterate it improves the degree to which students can interact with each other in a diverse multicultural environment, which basically is these days becoming to describe much of the world. The work world. The and work world, especially. So it's preparing them for the work world so that they will get along together and, and, and you know, collaborate. But tiny bit of social engineering, that does, <laughs> does capture some of it. <laughs> a little bit, anyway. There are, uh, in the U.S., there are a lot of programs um, of, of many, many different languages, um, but Spanish is the largest number because 75% of the English learners are, are Spanish speakers. But uh, you have, for example, a lot of um, Asian language programs on the West Coast. Yes, in um, Washington State especially, and, and California. California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mandarin, um, Cantonese, Korean, Korean Japanese, Vietnamese. Vietnamese, yeah. And and interestingly, the Vietnamese communities on the West Coast have now, <clears throat> um, originally when the boat people came and, and you know, we had the first em immigrant arrivals, um, <clears throat> we had a situation where the parents said, we don't want anything to do with, with Vietnamese, only teach us in English. <clears throat> and absolutely, you know, it's just- It's, and it's a natural it's, it's inclination for natural any immigrant. After you've been yeah. through war and, yeah, and yeah. horrible circumstances. 
And then now third generation parents are saying, we want to, our kids to reconnect to their heritage language and culture. And so they are pushing the school districts to develop Vietnamese programs, which is terrific. And succeeding in places yeah. like Washington State. Yeah, yeah. 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 All up and down the There's some wonderful things going on around the country. We are so privileged in that we get and have gotten to interact with the folks who are on the front lines <laughs> and actually doing these things. And our efforts have been trying to help them in the system over the last 30, 35 years. But we've been so privileged to be able to vicariously, at a slight distance, experience all the wonderful things that are happening in education, especially surrounding dual language education. Yeah, it's, been, it's exciting. It really Very is. Exciting. Well, you talked up my heart right there because I'm, I'm thinking I actively, it's not often to see a person in, who's 38, who was raised in America, born in another country, maintain their Vietnamese, right? I can right. somewhat read it. I can I can fully understand it, and I can speak it. But people at my age are like, wait, you can still speak Vietnamese? And I think that the fact that I would have been a better, different person if I had if I went to a Vietnamese dual language program. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, because yeah. all the years that I had internalized uh, racism against Asians, right, mm -hmm. because of my experience, and not because the <clears throat> school didn't have that. But if I had uh, a dual language Vietnamese English program, I would see my culture in a very different way. Yes, sure. yes. And that's probably why all of these parents who are roughly your age and your age group anyway, yeah. are not only suggesting, they're <laughs> demanding that school districts, and especially on the West Coast, no yeah. nonsense. Texas we want our, our language back, we want our cultural back, mm -hmm. and we want to be Americans as well as yeah. understanding we of Vietnamese. And that's the pervasive attitude, as far as we can tell, in yeah. some areas, of, especially in Washington State. Yeah, and Texas. And Texas, interestingly <laughs> enough, you wouldn't have suspected it to happen in Texas, but it does, especially in places <laughs> like Houston, I guess. Anyway, <clears throat> we've, we've, had, we've been wonderfully blessed to have been able to go all around the country and to some extent to, to Europe as well, but especially all around the United States of America for the last 35 years and actually see in real life these wonderful things happening. I, I feel like I, I've just been so blessed and I know you feel the same way. Yeah, it's really special. Well, with this, like you have really clearly explained the case for dual language programs with all the research, all the statistics why is there still resistance? And what do you do with that resistance? <laughs> well, first of all, the resistance is going away. I mean, this is related yeah, to one of your is. questions about what's it happened is. in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. People are have really- It's changing. It changed. Yeah. Part of what's, um, the reasons for the resistance, I think have to do with what? You wanna talk about that? This is more um, your, your area. Um, the, like with the white nationalist movement, uh, which is yucky, yes. awful. <clears throat> Uh, in the U.S., um, it's it's so. I mean, they're they're trying just to express their own identity. Um, it's mainly males, masculine, white, um, and um, but it's 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 misinformed. And uh, what they don't catch on, they're saying we want to go back to some time in the past, you know, when it was better. And well, hello. <laughs> it wasn't better back in the past. We were there and we know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's that kind of thing. And then you have the English only movement, which has was very strong in the 1980s and the 1990s. 
And it's kind of almost disappeared from U.S. Yeah. rhetoric now, which is really interesting. Their mantra used to, somewhat humorously, used to be expressed as, this is America, we speak English. And so one of our <laughs> friends who's a superintendent in South Texas actually took that and said, okay, this is America, we speak English, but we also speak Spanish <laughs> and Vietnamese and, you know, and so on. So um, I don't really understand what happened yet in California in 1997, Prop 227. Well, it was only 16%, 17% of the population yeah. came out to vote. It was, the vote was in June. And uh, so it wasn't a fair election at all that they went. But the same thing was done English in Arizona only. and Massachusetts. Yeah, right. Now, basically, they said no more. The old form of bilingual. Ed. They right. weren't talking about dual language here. They were talking about the old form, transitional yeah. bilingual. Ed, the one where you start off speaking Spanish and you wind up speaking English and that's it. And just for two or three years, you do, yeah, the, do that, that program the, and you're, you're isolated from your peers who speak English while you're in that program. And it didn't work well. Dual language is and not that at all. This is the new stuff. This is the stuff that actually really works. Yeah. And it's not your grandparents' bilingual education from the 80s and 90s at all. Right. <clears throat> and uh, so in a sense, the English only movement helped get rid of the old forms of bilingual schooling that didn't work well. Which is a good thing. <laughs> And it's it's ironic, but um, now if they had just replaced them with dual language programs, yeah. we'd be twenty years ahead of where yeah, we are now. Right. No. But that's where they fell down. Right. Now, in both California and um, well, all three states that became English only, uh, they they did away with all the um, transitional bilingual ed, but uh, which was only for English learners. But um, in California, the English speaking parents fought back after Proposition 227 was voted in. And they said, you're not taking this away from my child, you know? And so they fought to get exceptions to the program. And so two-way schools, so two-way dual language did continue in California all during the, the English only time. Um, and, but it was like, there were 467 schools, I think, when, when finally they overturned Proposition 227 and now they have um, <clears throat> Proposition 58 allows the school districts to do anything they want to. But what's happening is the California Superintendent of Education has said, we're doing dual language and they're really working <clears throat> on expanding the programs now after 20 years of no, no bilingual schooling. Now, I am pleased to say that people like me and other members of the search community pointed out very carefully and, and pointedly <laughs> to California. Have you noticed, California, that your state test scores in the national down, assessment down, 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 have down. now, California is now number 50 among the 50 states. Did you notice that? <laughs> that was true uh, at the end when Proposition 58 was. That's what happens when between 1997 and 2016. And finally, now the scores are going back up again. Now, the folks in Massachusetts were a little more on the ball. They said, yeah. uh-oh, our scores for English learners are going way down. We better do something. And they moved to reverse even sooner. Our, our wonderful friends in Arizona haven't fully oh, caught on yet. They're still, they're oh, the still. Poor kids are really suffering. And Arizona's yeah. test scores compared to the other states are, are very low. Um, and they're not going to go up until they get it and understand that just teaching low-level skills in English is not what it takes to have success, especially in the secondary years. You have to have 
cognitively bracing instruction. You can't just emphasize all this low level stuff and hope for the best. You can do it, but it doesn't work well at all. And it, it's clear from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, among others, that this is the case. It's just a matter of when the politicians are going to be persuaded to abandon a terribly faulted position that they have now occupied for 20 years. I mean, it's like, what was it going to take for them to figure this out? I sound like I'm criticizing. We have really good friends, really wonderful educator friends in Arizona, but they're the ones who are in charge of, of decision-making. Policy. The other states are all recognizing that uh, dual language is, is the way to go. And there are quite a few superintendents that are now stating we're going to do dual language for the whole state. Um, North Carolina, North Carolina Georgia, Georgia, Washington State, yeah. California, right. New Mexico, yeah. Nevada, Nevada, Delaware, um, New York City. Delaware, yeah. Yeah. Not New York State, but New York City is, has been on fire yeah. the last several oh, years, yeah. too. They're really excited. I mean, they're bringing online 50 or 60 new dual language schools every, every year. year. It's the nation's yeah. largest school system. Yeah. Um, so anyway. So it's it's really expanding. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's exciting to watch. Yeah. So what I think the changes that have happened are that people, people on the street, people, moms and dads, normal moms and dads, now seem to understand that dual language instruction that that produces proficiency not just exposure i was exposed to french and to latin <laughs> and to german but you had like 10 years of all those things and still can't 50 years later i mean I, I use mean, them it's not there anymore <clears throat> so you don't think of me you know i'm not a proficient bilingual at all although i've studied other languages but parents seem to understand now that Proficient bilinguals have an advantage, and it's a big advantage. It's not a small advantage. Mm -hmm. It's a big advantage. Mm -hmm. yep. If you are a proficient bilingual, your brain literally works better. I mean, a cognitive psychologist can list the ways. Uh, and so you're a more efficient learner. You're a better learner. You're in every way improved in your abilities to deal with cognitive tasks. And there are thousands. And, and moms and dads seem to understand that in ways they didn't 20 years ago. Yeah. And there are thousands of studies that back that up, too. Yes. We're not the only ones yeah. wailing into the wilderness as we were in 1997. Now, there are other studies all around the country have, <laughs> have said, oh, oh, okay, yeah, okay, we see, we see. And they've reinforced, basically, every all of our major conclusions have now been fully reinforced in a variety of different states and a variety of different contexts by a variety of different researchers, not just us. So we may, we were among the first, not maybe the very first, but to, among the first to, to say analyze this. longitudinal data. Yes, looking at kids over a long period of time and and saying, oh, here's what's really going on, and we still say it's it's not. You know, some people say, well, it takes um, like Jim Cummins first came out with the uh, based on two thousand students. <clears throat> uh, it takes five to seven years to get to grade level in your second language and. And our studies have shown that too. So we say it's an average of six years it takes to get to grade level in your second language. But it's because the native English speakers in the class are not sitting around waiting for the English learners to catch up with them. They're making progress too. So everybody's gotta make school progress plus learn how to express it in, in, in the second language, so. The short form is if a native English speaker makes one year's progress in one year's time, which is what they do on average, then an English learner has to make one and a half years progress for six years in a row mm -hmm. to catch up. 
in that's English. In English. That's so, the bottom line. So and they, that's why it takes six years. It's really tough to make one and a half years instructional progress in your second language while you're competitor, your you know, your student to whom you're being compared to, the native English speaker, is chugging along at the rate of one year's progress in one year's time. That's really difficult. And the only program that allows student English learners to make that kind of progress is guess which one? Dual language. All of the others only allow at maximum for a half of English learners' achievement gap to be closed. One half. By the time they get to middle school, they have closed one half of their gap and that's it for any other program other than dual language. Yeah. That's the power we're talking about here of this, when it's done well. Now, if you do a cursory job and just kind of play at dual language, and of course you don't get these results. But if you really sit down and implement it well and think hard about how the instruction should proceed and how to best take advantage of the power of dual language, it's transformative. And the key variable <clears throat> that creates that cognition, that, that jump of one and a half years is that academic work in your first language. Yes. That's the key. Because they can work more efficiently, cognitively speaking, in their first language and therefore make more, it, it's like it creates more cognitive space for achievement in the second language to later occur. You're creating more opportunity, more cognitive places to store information, to process information when you do things that way. Trying to teach a person in his or her second language, they are, you, if you try to teach me in my second language, I would take <laughs> years to learn anything. I'm a very inefficient learner in my second language, especially after all these, this time. Plus, I discovered um, <clears throat> I was taking a course um, with my fellow student, my master's and doctoral students, um, when we were expanding uh, dual language programs in, the, in, the, in our area. Um, and uh, I, my, the course was on teaching first grade in Spanish, okay? And it, it was also Vietnamese and Korean because those were the other two major languages. Um, but um, so I, I was in the section that was working on how to teach first graders in Spanish. And um, we were doing it in math and science and health. And I found I didn't have the vocabulary to be able to teach in Spanish because I'd never gone to school in the math course in Spanish. And so I was, I was just completely out of it. So, so you, you, it, it's, it's acquiring the, the curriculum, the curricular words, the vocabulary that you need to express um, what you already know. Now, I should point out in her defense, she grew up in Central America <laughs> speaking Spanish. She has a <laughs> master's degree in Spanish. And what she just said is still true. Yeah. So it, it's, it depends on proficiency in what, in, in which content areas and so forth. So it's, it's complex. Yeah. I am just so loving this conversation. <laughs> You're doing all the work. I don't really need to ask questions. <laughs> As George Bush once said, this ain't my first rodeo. So we've done this before. You know? <laughs> I can tell you, you're just building on and adding and say like, this is another layer. Or this is another way of thinking about it. And you do it in such a beautiful way. I'm like, I can tell that you've been married a while and you understand each other. <laughs> How long is it now? 30, almost 40 years? 45, 40 years. Yeah, my yeah. goodness. <laughs> Every now and then I think about and go, oh, wow. <laughs> mm. Mm. All right, what's next? 
Well, let's talk about the second part of your book, which is you have 10 examples of successful dual language programs. Before we get there, can you talk about the qualities of uh, really effective dual language programs? Okay, okay. I'm going to just do a a little bit of of explaining where the secondary book came from. And uh, this was our very first book, We uh, Educating English Learners. and um, these, these five books are published by Dual Language Education of New Mexico. That's where we recommend that you all go to purchase them because it's cheaper from them. Because <laughs> they'll give discounts if, if a whole school district is ordering 100 copies, they get a, bit, get a big discount. Anyway, this was the first book um, and its focus is on English learners and why we end up saying dual language makes a huge difference for English learners. Let me just put them in a quick. Yeah. There are five books here, and yeah. they don't overlap very much. Okay? Yeah. Each one has yeah. a different emphasis. Clearly, there's some connections, but this is not five books on the same topic at all. But they're all on dual language. Yes, <laughs> but different aspects of dual language. So the red book, which is the second one, uh, is focused on explaining dual language, where it came from, you know, what are all the different models, because there's not just one model of dual language, and, and then explaining how they work. And then the third book is for administrators, and that's written by administrators. Um, so we, we have a couple of chapters in there, but we edited it and put it together uh, from a lot of different voices of people who are who are administering dual language programs, including principals and, and superintendents and so forth. This is part of the blessing I referred to earlier, where we've had the opportunity for the last 30 plus years to go about the country and see real people doing real things, wonderful real things with dual language. This is the administrative version of that. And, and then um, why dual language <clears throat> schooling we recommend to people who are uh, trying to figure out what you know, should we do this or not? Um, this is written for policymakers and parents who are saying, I don't think my child should uh, get schooling in two languages, just, just, uh, just, just English, that's all we want. And so we have, uh, you know, pretty solid explanations of why it works so well. And this is kind of the overview. And we should also mention that was actually inspired by one of our friends who's a school superintendent in Oregon who wanted us to write basically a 20 page quick and I won't say dirty, but quick explanation <laughs> of uh, how dual language and what dual language really means to parents, policymakers, school boards, because he's getting all these questions and he's having to repile the same answers over and over again. So basically, we took that 20 page paper we wrote from him and turned it into a, a small easy to look at, easy to follow book. Yeah, for uh, we said superintendents will read for five minutes, so we'll, we'll make we'll something short. <laughs> and then the, the fifth book is secondary education and um, why it's so important to continue the dual language program into the middle and high school years. Um, so that's the context for this, this book um, that, yeah. And now I forget what what was your question? The qualities of a really effective dual language program. Okay, um, and you would find that in the red book, the second book. Um, and essentially, every type of dual language program works well. So we always start with that. But um, there are two way works slightly better than one way. 
That is, um, <clears throat> two-way gets the kids to grade level sooner in their second language. Uh, generally, English learners and native English speakers are on grade level by fifth grade if they've done a two-way program because they're, they're teaching each other. They're, they're, it's an integrated class and, and it stimulates them. Um, One-way dual language also works well, but we recommend taking it to eighth grade because it takes at least that long for some of the kids to get to grade level. When Full they, gap closure. Yeah, when they don't have native English speakers in their class, because one way is they're segregated. It's just, but it might be that maybe the whole school district is Hispanic, you know, on the border with Mexico. And, um, and so they don't have the kids who are native English speakers to be able to be mixed in with the class. So then it's a one-way class and it still works. It still works. I want to point out one more time that your choices are gap, full gap closure. In other words, bringing English learners to full parity with native English speakers versus at best half gap closure in the long term. Those are your choices. Which do you want? Well, if you want full gap closure, you're going to need to go with some form of dual language instruction. And it will take six, seven, eight years, depending on which form you select. If you select any other form of instruction for English learners, the best you're going to get after six or seven years is half of their gap closed. That's as good as it gets, okay? We in this country cannot afford and have never been able to afford that law, that degree of loss of human capital. We simply cannot tolerate that as a society. We can't live with that. We can't prosper with that. We must address that. It's absolutely essential as a national uh, matter of intense importance. So um, we talked about two-way and one-way and uh, other variation. That's just the demographics of your program. That's all that is. And then uh, there's 90-10 versus 80-20 versus 50-50. All those work well, again, but 90-10 works best. And uh, we found in our data that uh, English learners can get to grade level in a 90-10 program by fifth grade, uh, whereas it takes until possibly eighth grade for the English learners to get to grade level in a 50-50 program. They'll all get there eventually, but it takes longer. So in this 90-10 program now, you're going so, to teach me 90% of the time in my 90, other language 90-10 is early on, but only for starting, the first, early, only early on. Yep. Starting in the non-English language in the U.S. So uh, <clears> that means that 90% of their time would be in um, say it's Vietnamese English program. Okay, so 90% of their time would be in Vietnamese. They learn to read and write in Vietnamese first before they switch And not to only the English learners, the native English, native speak, English our speakers, our grandchildren would learn to read in Vietnamese. Everybody. Now, you'd have to explain that to your average parent. That's a tough sell. There, to there the are good reasons for doing it, and we cover them in the, in the uh, second book i and guess right it, uh, the, but it takes some explanation this model comes from canada this is their their one-way program for native english speakers called immersion um, but it really does work quite well um, what it does for the uh, english learners who are vietnamese speaking is it's stimulating their cognitive development in their first language so that they are on grade level when they start school creating more cognitive space for future learning in, and future development to occur on grade level in vietnamese okay mm -hmm. and for the native english speakers it doesn't hurt them because <laughs> they're going to develop 
cognitively anyway in English outside of school. And um, eight hours a day, that. they're going to be in school. The other hours of the day, they're going to be immersed in the great sea of English. And um, not Vietnamese. And when when the native English speakers get that. 90% of the time in Vietnamese in kindergarten and first grade, that's jump-starting their acquisition of Vietnamese, which is what they need not to keep the class behind. Because they're is not there... going to hear Vietnamese outside of their school day, yeah, okay? They yeah. will not, most of them anyway. So, they're going to need an intensive exposure to Vietnamese inside the school day to have long-term success and to be competitive. So, and the research shows that um, it doesn't hurt both groups to learn to read in that language first, and then you introduce reading in English in either first or second grade. Some of the programs do it different, a different grade level. Um, but by the time that they introduce English reading formally in school, the kids have already picked it up on their own uh, because there's a lot of skills that transfer um, between languages, even if it's a non-Roman alphabet language. And so, um, so uh, it, it works really, really well. And it, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'm a former school administrator here, as I am. Uh, I always think in terms of what does it take to explain this to moms and dads and to the school board and to the superintendent and so on. So it's, it takes quite a bit to have this fully understood uh, sometimes why 9010 is so effective uh, for all of these groups. And so you have to, you have to really bear down and study this to see why, not only from a theoretical point of view, but from a practical real world point of view, why this works so well. 9010 is the most effective form of dual language instruction, but that's counterintuitive, isn't it? I um, mean, it's like, what? That's the most effective form? So, what happens in the real world, remember I'm a former administrator, central office and building and everywhere, you know, what happens in the real world is that people say, well, how far behind is 50-50 dual language? And the answer is not that far behind, okay? Both of those alternatives put you light years ahead of ESL, transitional bilingual ed and all, you know, yeah, English only pull out all those other things. You don't want to go there. Because the, what you want is the best form of dual language that you can actually carry out in your real world school environment. And if that means you don't want to have to swim against the tide of trying to explain why 9010 is better. Yes, it is, especially <laughs> then, in the long then term. Then go with 50-50. Then go with 50-50. We'll take it. 50 means 50% of the time in English, 50% of the time in Vietnamese. And we could use another uh, Arabic, maybe, yeah. you know, okay? Uh, any, whatever yeah. language you want to put in for the, for the what is the program language. Um, but when you do 50% in each language, um, that means that you should um, make sure that over a two-year period, the kids get every subject in both languages. So maybe this year you could teach math in Spanish, and next year you teach it in English, and, and so forth. You, you work hard on making sure that they get access to all the subjects over a two-year period. So again, from the administrative point of view, you can hear the principals and, uh, and central office people saying, I like the idea of 50-50. Okay, we get 95% of the benefit, 90-95%, and we don't have to, they won't beat us up so badly in school board <laughs> meetings wanting to know, why are you teaching my native English speaking child in Vietnamese 90% of the time in grade one? You know, things like that. Now, having said that, back in the real world, five years later, when these children who have received 
We have noticed that in by early by late elementary school, you want to talk about this? What can happen? Go ahead. The native I... English speakers in particular are not able to keep up. They need yeah. more exposure right. to Vietnamese or whatever right. the second language mm -hmm. is yeah. because they don't get it anywhere outside of the school day. And they get behind and, and they're not really able to do, say, four. And it's the native grade. English speakers it's, who it's are then holding group. up the it's... train. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what we have found in the great state of North Carolina in particular is that principals who initially said, I'm going to go with 50-50 because I don't like being beat up. And I, and I get most of the benefit. I'm just talking real world language here, okay? This is how principals think and talk. Uh, and they come back four years later and say, I don't like the way the native English speakers are performing and they don't have enough exposure to Vietnamese. I'm gonna shift. Teachers complain. <laughs> yeah, the teachers really complain. <laughs> I'm going to shift over from 50-50 to 90-10. We've demonstrated our creds, our credibilities here. We've shown that we're doing a great job. Now we're going to incrementally improve it and now I can explain it to moms and dads because they know what's going on. This is the kind of stuff that administrators get involved with. And I know you know about this. And I know many of your observers and your followers here will know about this. But this is the real world that administrators live with. And they have to live with it because it's their thing to do. So that frequently happens. You get initially a uh, chicken out version of 50-50, and then we'll go with the stuff that really does it in the long term once we've established ourselves, once we've shown that we know what we're doing and that these students are greatly prospering, especially the English learners. But we still tell everybody that all these <clears throat> programs work quite well. You just have to all keep the dual it, language programs. All the dual language varieties, and you just have to keep going. Don't stop <clears throat> it at elementary school level. Keep it going into the secondary years. It's sad because I think about it from as I'm an international school educator, I see lots of schools do the 90-10, but the other way around. It's like 90% English and 10% like Thai. Not good, not right? good. <laughs> and they even pull like they, they have a lot of international schools. This is what they do. Oh, you're a beginner. You're phase one, two. We're going to pull you away from going to the Thai class. And instead of the Thai class, we're going to have you have extra English classes. And I'm like, would you like to talk about that? Have any of these folks actually yeah. looked at the results of doing that? Because they're not pretty, okay? All you have to do is do a really systematic full bore evaluation of that and you'll find it's not pretty, it's not good. You don't want that in the long term, especially. I'm glad you're teaching in the international school yes, context. That's, right. that's terrific. <clears throat> Those are great schools overall. Mm. They're they're really, really exciting schools, yeah. We have exposure to them in yeah. Europe, at least, right? Yeah, right? The European Council of International Schools mm. and other such groups. But they do. They, they push the English too much. Yeah. Well. <laughs> anyway. Well, I have only a few more minutes, so I want to just... Can yeah. I ask a question about... Can you just walk us through what it looks like in elementary school very quickly, like a day in elementary school and a day in in the secondary school for dual language programs? Ah, okay. Well, elementary, um, you would have, the, the programs can vary in whether they actually include the kids using both languages at the same time. And um, it's, uh, there's a lot of things to go into about that. So I won't, I won't go into the detail, but the teacher might have an instructional plan where basically the, the main language is English and they're doing this subject in English. Uh, 
but then they would switch to um, another time in the curricular day when the Spanish is the main language. Uh, the latest thing that's that's gotten really popular in bilingual ed is translanguaging, and that's that that's much too complicated to get into right now. But anyway, um, uh, bilinguals naturally use both of their languages all the time and go back and forth between them, and and um, so it's taking advantage of that and being able to for the kids not to be stuck with just working in one language. So there's, but there are reasons to just work in one language that have to do with the teacher keeping track of how are they progressing on vocabulary acquisition and all the different aspects of the language. So, so, um, so you 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 will have variations in when you're in one language versus the other, um, all during the day. Um, but you're doing interesting things. You're doing discovery learning. You're doing um, problem solving. You're um, uh, we watched a class in Chapel Hill where the fourth graders were talking about the Chesapeake Bay um, and how we adults had completely destroyed their environment and they were going to clean it up. And so, but they were doing this whole presentation, PowerPoint and everything in Spanish. And these are native, native English speakers and native Spanish speakers um, in, in groups. And, and it was just exciting stuff. It was like college level. I thought we'd missed a turn and gone into the community college or <laughs> Fourth something. <grade>. I mean, <laughs> it was really amazing. Um, but the kids, what the kids are working on is usually, you know, pretty, pretty challenging problem solving types of things, um, that, uh, but some of the, some of it they're doing in English, some of it they're doing in the other language. Now, here's the point I made earlier about Bloom's taxonomy and teaching up and down the levels of, of cognitive demand. A lot of instruction, and especially for English learners, emphasizes knowledge, comprehension, and basically short-term instructional objectives and low-level cognitive demand, and that's it. And the reason that actually works it doesn't work well, but it actually works at all, is that a lot of state tests are also full of items that measure short-term objectives and low-level skills. All right, here's the thing. From an evaluation perspective, that will can produce short-term gains, but it will not produce long-term gains. Short-term gains, you can goose your test scores for a year or so, but after a couple of years, any gain from that kind of emphasis on low-level skills and short-term objectives disappears. But in dual language, you don't go there in the first place. You are varying up and down Bloom's taxonomy. You are you have low-level skills and short-term objectives, but you aren't limited to that. You have, even with students who historically have not received that kind of instruction at all, like, I mean, Title I, for example, uh, benefit and prosper from the level, from exposure to different levels of cognitive demand. They stay interested. They stay more engaged. And when the teacher does it well, it is extraordinary to watch, as in the case of this Chapel Hill uh, And I was enchanted with my daughter's first grade class. It was so amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, secondary. Um, secondary, you would... Uh, the. You want to talk about middle separate from high school or not? Mm, I'm gonna, no, because no. even they're they're both similar. Middle middle and high school, you're dealing with um, courses, and so you're 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 going to offer a certain number of courses in the target language. Let's use Vietnamese as our example again. So these kids have been through a Vietnamese English program from kindergarten to fifth grade. They move into the middle school. And sixth, seventh, eighth grade, they're continuing to develop their Vietnamese through some courses that are offered in Vietnamese. 
exclusively. Okay, so they, they it wouldn't be a program a class where they would be um, half of the time in English, half of the time in Vietnamese. It would be all in Vietnamese. So maybe um, uh, I don't know biology. You know, the so it would be at least one content area in middle school and one Vietnamese language arts class. So they get they get at least two classes, maybe three at, at middle school. High school, the same. So you decide what courses are going to be offered in Vietnamese. And then you've got to get the teachers who are certified to teach that <clears throat> subject, as well as that they have to be completely proficient in Vietnamese. And it's not it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to get the teachers. Shortage of bilingual teachers is huge yeah, worldwide yeah. and in the U.S., yeah, and that's where we've got to go. So right now, the, the urgency is training bilingual <clears throat> teachers. Yeah. It's going to take a while to recover. California estimates that it'll take 10 years to get back to the levels where they were prior to Prop 227 in, in terms of teacher training and uh, developing degrees of bilingualism necessary to teach at higher mm -hmm. cognitive levels. And it's not going to happen overnight. We spent in California, just one example, we spent 20 years trying to stamp out bilingual education. And there, therefore, it's going to take a while to bring back in the new generation of teachers the necessary skills to carry this off well. We know that it's worth the effort. We know that the outcomes can be fantastic, but we have to get from here to there in terms of the specifics of teacher training. And I'm going to say one more thing about secondary, which is really important, and that is that English learners just arrived belong in the dual language program. And that's why it's so key at secondary level that uh, they get academic work in their native language because they're, they've got to, it's tough stuff that they have to do at secondary level. And, and if, they, if they have already been to school in their native language, and of course that's, <laughs> that's a challenge that's an in itself, but even if they have not, they still do better because they're cognitively more mature in their first language than they are in their second language. So all English learners just arriving belong, I mean, if the language, <laughs> if the dual language program is in their native language, they belong in those classes. That is absolutely key. And that means, that doesn't mean that they should get only courses in their native language. They, they are going, half of the time, they're going to be with ESL content teachers mm -hmm. who are going to help them acquire English and, and academic work, but the key is that they get the courses in now, the native language. This is a research-based recommendation. It's not yeah. just something we pulled out of thin air, yeah. all right? But I, you got to tell you, the first reaction you get from some school folks, especially in the secondary years, is, what? <laughs> this kid just arrived last week. And you want to got to learn English? Help. Yeah, you got to learn English first, you know, <laughs> you know, and all this. No, you have to look long-term. Uh, and so it's, it's really a conundrum for, for those of us who have the research to support these recommendations to convince the folks in classrooms and schools that uh, what you as the most intuitive thing. Can I give you an example? Or are we running out of time? I know you're... <laughs> um, uh, Omaha Public Schools in Omaha, Nebraska... Um, they're, they're an incredible secondary dual language program and they're K through 12, but um, uh, they very quietly developed this model and hoped that the state wouldn't notice. Wow. <laughs> Not quite true, but <laughs> anyway, they're, they're now very well known. Um, and um, what they did was they're 
this is mainly Spanish speakers who emigrated to that area to be meat packers, coming from Mexico, Central America, where um, most of their parents had never been to school. They came from very you know, rough circumstances in their home country. <clears throat> and so when they arrive, at least they have a stable life. And um, so they're serving as meat packers. And they are wanted by the local economy. Oh, yeah, right. It's a, it's a really important job. So um, the children uh, attending the school district, uh, they started the pre-K through uh, fifth grade in, uh, elementary, and then they decided, we've got, we the kids are coming in at all grade levels, we've got to provide bilingual schooling for every single uh, grade level. And so they started this high school. And... Um, they are graduating 100% of their students every year. And this is low, low, low income kids who've been through rough circumstances. And what they're doing is they are making it possible for these kids to have a whole new life. Um, and um, they work very hard to, uh, for the kids to maintain their Spanish, develop it academically, and because uh, some of the kids have never been to school before and they're coming in at eighth grade level, ninth grade level, and they work and work with them until they graduate from high school and, um, and then and go on to university work. And now they have a uh, teaching academy at the high school level where the kids are getting into courses at university level while they're still in high school because they're they're doing them as um advanced uh, ap uh, advanced, advanced, placement. advanced placement so um they're they're taking courses that are helping them become bilingual teachers and they're coming back to the school district to be bilingual teachers so it's it's just a beautiful story politically and in the real world she's put her finger now on probably mm -hmm. one of the most important act outcomes of secondary dual language. For English learners, it raises their high school graduation rate from the typical level it was 10 years ago, 50 percent at best, and this is nationwide, yeah. to 98, 95, even 100 percent as in Omaha. That's very, very powerful. Yeah. Now, when we presented this to the legislature in this great state of Oregon, they almost jumped <laughs> off their chairs as one because they went, We've been working on trying to improve the high school graduation rate for English learners for the last 20 years. And all of a sudden you bring us something that does that? Yes. And so that's a huge and very consequential importance for a sex successful secondary dual language program greatly elevates the graduation rate of English learners. Like I said earlier, we cannot afford to lose 50% of the human capital that is there in the population of, human, of English learners. We simply can't afford to do that. No one can. We've watched several school districts in Oregon uh, that have now strong dual language programs, K through 12, and, and the kids are graduating like crazy. Woodburn, Beaverton, um, Portland. Anyway, it's... Salem. it's Salem, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really exciting, exciting stuff. <laughs> well, it seems like dual language program, I wrote several things down. It's just assets based, equitable learning, and culturally sustaining. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. all these things that are like the trends in education mm -hmm. currently really right. is being addressed through dual language program. Yes, right. yes, it really works. 
<laughs> like I said, you have to implement the program well. You can't just go about it willy-nilly. You can't offer 90% of the instruction in, say, English, English. And, the, and the other, you know. <laughs> that that, does, that's not a dual language. We're here to tell you, that's not, <laughs> one, that's not a dual language program. And secondly, it's not going to work very well. Not nearly as well as a real dual language program. Right, right. Uh, dual language programs have to be at least 50% of the time in the non-English language. And the reason for that, in case it's not just, as I like to say, it's not just political correctness, it's because that's the, the optimum combination for maximizing cognitive development, 50-50, okay? Or even more percentages in the, in the direction of, of the, the other, the second language, the partner language. Um, but a maximum of 50% for English. And that includes the specials. That includes phys ed and mm -hmm. music and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so, <laughs> again, it's not being, it's not just a notion of some kind of political parity. It's because that's what maximizes cognitive development. Mm -hmm. If you just sort of play around with the second language, that doesn't do it for you in terms of cognitive development. But a full engagement, 50% in one language, 50% in the other, is the optimum combination. And that's why you give a lot of attention to making sure that you don't get what I have come to call English creepage. <laughs> and I claim a copyright on that term, by the way. <laughs> English means that English creeps into the instructional program. And, and I'm saying, I'm sure it's true in other countries with other languages as well. Uh, you know, you look, you say, oh yeah, we're 50% English and 50% Vietnamese. And then you actually observe in the classrooms and it's more like 70% English and 30% Vietnamese. So anyway, yeah. not to go on with that. <laughs> well, let's end with this. I mean, I this has been one of my favorite podcast episodes so far, and I have done about a hundred episodes. Wow. The, the <laughs> way, Very flattering. Oh, and I have all like just I'm just impressed. Anyways, okay, so I only reserve this question for the most prolific scholars in our field, and. <laughs> Uh, it's a closing sentence. It's a closing question for both of you. Oprah has, I took it from Oprah. She always asks her people like, so what do you know for true? What do you, what do you know that's, uh, after all this time, what do you know that's real? Right. What do you know for sure? Sorry, what do you know for sure? After 40 years of work here, what do you know for sure about dual language programs? When you work hard on understanding the theory of dual language, when you work hard on implementing dual language, the result you get will way outperform any other program, not only for English learners, but also for native English speakers. And I know that for sure, after almost 40 years of examining millions of student records, mm -hmm. okay? And, and it's it's true for, um, for every child, uh, it's, the, the more children can be raised multilingually. Um, and if parents can't do that, then let the school um, help with that process. Yeah. And one more time, the major impacts are much greater cognitive development, much greater student engagement with the good things going on in the classroom. And to finish up with my favorite topic here called <laughs> Remember, I was a physics teacher. And so uh, positive feedback loops. What happens is that these two major, what are called main effects, they feed back and cause increased student motivation. They cause increased student self-concept. What do those things do? Well, they improve the main effects. And those feedback can cause increased attendance in school, increased, all, you know, all 
What you create here is a whole series of positively reinforcing factors, which in the end, when you look at it as an engineer or a physicist would, it's an achievement amplifier, okay? An amplifier for achievement. There's no other program I have ever looked at in 40 some years that does that. Properly implemented, fully implemented dual language does that. And that makes it very, very special. I'm about and to well get off. I'm sorry, go ahead. And well worth anyone's effort who's serious about improving education at large and for individual groups of students. If you're serious about that, you've got to be interested in dual language, properly implemented. There's simply no other alternative that we know of. <clears throat> I feel like I'm the second I end mm -hmm. this call, I'm gonna go look for a dual language program certification. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to end with these two words then. Uh, it has been an enchanting experience, which you said before, and I feel wonderfully blessed to have such bright scholars continue their advocacy work for the last 40 years. We will look back and continue to bow for the work. We will be sitting in the shade of the tree that you've planted 40 years ago. We oh, continue wow. to do that now. <laughs> Thank you. Tim. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. <laughs> Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. So there you have it. If you are looking for something that will close the achievement gap for multilingual learners to increase their graduation rate statewide and province-wide and to prepare students to contribute to a diverse world, then we need to seriously consider dual language programs. After listening to this conversation, can English-only programs and policies look equitable and favorable anymore when compared to truly dual language initiatives. Though I do not work in a dual language school and am not certified to be one, I can still encourage and intentionally create opportunities for students to use their heritage language as a tool for learning and expression. This is my call to not be an educator that transitions students out of one language and into another. It's time for me to add new languages while nurturing the ones students already bring with them. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.